Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded on Thursday, March 22nd, 2018. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg. And as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Before we dig into today's episode, I wanted to take a rare pause on the show and pat ourselves on the back. Let's do it. My arm is breaking as I'm doing it. Yeah, awesome. Uh, T-Rex hates uh, patting himself on the back. Fun fun dinosaur fact. Uh, So we have received a couple accolades on the show, much to our surprise. Uh, So first of all, there is a site called Disruptor Daily, and they rank uh, podcasts in different industries. And they put the Jason Scott Show on their top 10 retail industry podcast. So that was exciting. Uh, and then another company called Bold Commerce, they put out 16 of the top e-commerce podcasts. Um, and these folks are pretty intense because uh, you can tell they actually listened to, to all the different podcasts out there. Um, we came in fourth on that one. So our goal next year is to move up the list, but we're real happy to be placed in the top quartile there. Um, and they picked three of their favorite episodes. Um, and one of them was episode 74 with our good friend, Melissa Burdick. So uh, thanks to Melissa for helping us make the list. Uh, Next up was episode 89, which was our hot take on the Whole Foods Amazon acquisition. And last but not least, Andrea Lay, uh, episode 83. Uh, so it's good that we, before we even saw this, we had have them both back on the show for a second appearance. So um, it's good that we, since those were quite popular, that we've we've had those folks back on. Yeah, you know, there's a, a little inside baseball on the Jason and Scott show. There's a lot of... Um, jockeying uh for the uh, the first guest to get a third appearance on the show i know uh, it's very competitive and i'm I'm a little worried that uh some violence could come into play the knives are out for sure really kind of trying to figure out what's going to happen there exactly so one other this, this is a go ahead. sorry one other important side note about the bold commerce list uh number 10 on that list was uh our friend uh eric uden at e-commerce fuel who's been doing a great podcast for a very long time um, and what was cool about that is uh, their favorite episode of, of of Andrews was an interview with me. So basically, I'm the most powerful person on the list. Absolutely. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. So we'd like to thank our listeners for uh, we could not be receiving these accolades if it weren't for you guys. Uh, we always talk about it in the show, so I'll put in a plug here. It definitely helps us to uh, you know continue to get listeners and receive accolades like this uh, if you subscribe to the show. So whatever your favorite podcast listening technology is, be it the uh, iTunes iOS podcast app or whatever, uh, please make sure you subscribe, and that helps us with our podcast SEO rankings. And definitely tell all your friends. Cool. So uh, jumping right in here in episode 122, this is uh, – so we we continued 
uh, we concluded Shock Talk yesterday, and while it's still fresh in our minds, we wanted to update everyone on the highlights from the show. So this is the second part of a two-part series, and back in way back in episode 121, we covered the first half as kind of halftime report of what happened at Shock Talk, so that covered the Sunday and Monday of the four days, and then here in episode 122, we're going to cover the back half or the second half of Shop Talk and really dive into what happened Tuesday and Wednesday. Um, Jason, why don't you kick it off with some of the first things that you attended Tuesday morning? Yeah, so uh, I, I have to start with some hearsay news. Uh, we were recording a podcast, so I didn't get a chance to attend this. Um, but there was a uh, the grocery track was going on Tuesday morning, and uh, a, a, at least to me, a piece of news broke in the grocery track. Uh, the VP of Digital at Albertsons announced that Albertsons would be launching a third party marketplace um, in the grocery space on their site uh, later this year. So they were they were soliciting um, applications from sellers interested in being on the marketplace. Very cool. And um, I read the news report and it said something like it was almost a dig at Amazon Whole Foods. It, you know, there's something about um, those guys are some brands are leaving uh, and Albertsons was building this marketplace almost as a home for those folks. Is that is that kind of your read on it? Uh, at least partially. And again, I, I wasn't at the session, so I, I'm kind of putting some pieces together. Um, you know, as we've covered on the show a little bit, like there there has been um, – some blowback in the Whole Foods acquisition. Um, and it's not clear whether this was driven by Amazon or this was a change that Whole Foods was in the process of making sort of in parallel with the Amazon acquisition. Um, but Whole Foods used to have a very sort of local orientation with their suppliers. And so individual they, uh, stores could buy from suppliers. Suppliers uh, could have autonomy to do their own merchandising in the store, and they were welcome to come into the store and set up their own displays and do sampling and things like that. And um, coincidental with the Amazon acquisition, Whole Foods has moved to a much more national management of vendors. So some of the small vendors have gotten kicked out. Some of the vendors have less control over their own stuff in the stores. And as you can imagine, some of the vendor community – is a little disgruntled with that. So I think whether whether that's, you know, um, actual discontent or whether, you know, that's just a mild annoyance, it, it certainly makes sense that a competitor like Albertsons would try to make some hay there. And I think they they mentioned that's one of the reasons that they they, they wanted to offer a, a marketplace alternative to, to Amazon in the grocery space. I would also say... In some ways, Albertsons has been one of the more digitally aggressive um, traditional grocers. So they, you know, they they've rolled out a lot of the the, the expected programs you'd see, like cur uh, expect to see, like curbside pickup. But you know, they also made the the hugest acquisition in the traditional grocery space. They they uh, you know spent over a billion dollars on plated uh, to have their own. Um, digitally native meal kit uh, service. And so, you know, this is a, uh, you know, there's a lot of questions in my mind about how a marketplace for fresh would work. But, uh, um, you know, I, I will certainly be watching it and we'll cover it on the show. Very cool. I'm just excited to have more marketplaces out there. This is going to be a theme of today's show is, is Mo Marketplaces. So that's exciting. And it'll be interesting to see 
you know, their what their vision of a grocery marketplace looks like. Sometimes we find retailers use the language marketplace, um, but really what they mean is just kind of dropship. So, you know, they they use EDI and a curated kind of a thing and kind of old school mechanisms to expand their selection versus when I think of marketplace, it's usually much more, you know, of an Amazon marketplace kind of a model or even an eBay where, you know, any brand could go up to Albertsons and say, hey, I want to join this marketplace. I've got this cool, hip, new, I don't know, energy drink or something uh, and want to make it available to your audience. So we'll, I'll be uh, eagerly watching to see what you learn about what it looks like. Yeah, yeah, and I, I assume uh, you, your experience is much deeper than mine in this, but uh, uh, I suspect you'll agree it's not uncommon for a retailer to underestimate the complexities of running a marketplace. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Um, so then uh, we wrapped up the, the podcast we were recording, and we made it to the first keynote in the morning, which was uh, Emily Weiss, who's the CEO and founder of Glossier. Um Glossier is a a cool digitally native brand in the beauty space uh, that has been experiencing rapid growth and gets a lot of buzz. And Emily, you know, is frequently talked about as one of the sort of next generation uh, female uh, leaders of successful companies. So uh, it, it was interesting to hear from her. Um, and she talked a lot about um, sort of what she called the new definition of a brand. And, uh, you know, this is a theme that continued with some of the other speakers and that uh, uh, I've been continuing to have with some some folks on Twitter, you know, uh, right up to showtime today. Um, but there's, the, you know, this notion of, of, you know, the company no longer being in charge and the consumer being in charge. Um, and so, you know, Emily described Glossier as a brand that was really designed – um, around listening to the customer instead of talking to the customer. And so she talked a lot about how traditional um, brands, when they, when they you know, want to be more customer-centric, their, their real goal is to make the customer feel like they're heard. And you know, she was making the point that, that making customers feel like they're heard is, a, heard is a far cry from actually hearing customers. Um, and so she, you know, she thinks a lot of their, you know, even their goals are disingenuous. Um, and then it's much harder to build a company that's really responsive to things they're hearing from customers. Um, and the, the way this manifests itself is she's like, you know, the days when a customer turns to an expert, be that a spokesperson or a brand for product discovery are sort of over in her mind. And she thinks that, you know, today with the advent of digital and one-to-one and all this transparency, the consumers are much more likely to turn to the, their peers for product discovery than they are to the centralized experts. And, and her proof point for that is that 80% of all of her customers came to Glossier based on a peer recommendation. And so, um, that was interesting to me because it's a it's a theme that com- that comes up in a couple of the other uh, presentations on on uh, Wednesday um, about the role of of brand and how important brand is in the role of of sort of spokespersons and celebrity endorsers and those sorts of things. So so uh, more to come on that. Cool. I was confused for most of this one because where I come from, we call it glossier, and I was like, where is the glossier person? And uh, never could find him. Yep. When you uh, work for a French uh, company, you learn to make everything sound a little more pompous. Okay. Wow. Uh, 
Then uh, after the Glossier keynote, uh, we had Amazon, and uh, this is exciting. You know, so they had two Amazon keynotes at the show, which is pretty unusual. Uh, so Amazon's usually pretty turtleish; they they don't like to come to these events and and really say much. Um, but if you remember, in the first half, we talked about the Amazon Go execs there talking about that, uh, and then here we had Eric Broussard. Uh, he is the VP of international market uh, international marketplaces and retail at Amazon. And uh, this was really interesting because, you know, what, what Amazon has done is built over 175 global fulfillment centers, um, but they were very um, country specific. So you could load balance product in the U.S. fulfillment centers. Let's say you, you were a third party and you were using FBA um, and you were selling widgets and you would send those widgets into Amazon. Let's say you sell a thousand. Amazon will kind of load balance those across its fulfillment centers based on where it anticipates the, the local points of demand. Um, so that's really cool. Um, but Amazon uh, historically hasn't had a way for you to really leverage that. We, we've at Channel we've had several customers really butt their heads up against this, where they wanted to expand to the UK, for example, and leverage FBA in the UK. And you know the Amazon local UK people were like, well, you have to have an entity, and you have to have a bank account, and you have to have a tax document, and you have to have an insurance document, and you know you have to um, do all these different things. So um, so really, this is a program. Amazon's been working on for a while and you know I don't know if they have formally announced it here but they're they're kind of giving a lot of details so, so essentially what they can do now is your product can be seamlessly sold globally uh, across the all the 175 fulfillment centers and they they had some great use cases so you could be a U.S. seller and then sell into Europe. You could, um, you know, as you know, they're really big in India. Uh, they have like 40 fulfillment centers in India. That's a huge battleground for them. Uh, Japan, China, uh, they're now in Australia. Um, there's rumors they'll be in Brazil at some point. So you could really use Amazon for your global infrastructure. And uh, another thing that's interesting about this that gives Amazon a huge edge is Amazon's also invested a ton of money into their catalog. And you know, so they, uh, unlike a, a marketplace like eBay, which is more freeform, uh, and where everyone that sells an Xbox or something kind of describes it in their own unique way on Amazon, they have this kind of golden description of every Xbox and whatnot. And what's nice about that is it allows them to then, as they go into other countries, translate that, that skew or that ASIN once. And then now you as a seller, if you match up against that and it's the same product as in like, let's just say France and the U S uh, you, you get kind of translation for free, uh, is, is kind of the punchline there. So, um, so that's a really nice benefit of the Amazon Marketplace solution. So they really talked about kind of a six-step process where they've made it insanely easy to sell globally. So step one is you send your inventory. So whatever your country you're in, and also this is all cross-country. So you could be an India seller as well as a UK seller or whatever. So whatever country you're in, you send your inventory into FBA. Um, they receive it and store it. Uh, and then it becomes prime enabled. And then Amazon, you can tell Amazon what countries you want to allow this into, and then they will put the product into those countries and they will load balance across countries. So number three, the customer orders the product. Number four, Amazon pick packs and ships. They handle the front end customer service. So if someone has a question about the product uh, of you know the delivery or anything like that, they have their entire force of local folks. Uh, and then they even handle the reverse logistics through back through the system. So you know, pretty uh, amazing. And a lot of people question Amazon's 
the amount of money they built out for this network of fulfillment centers. And this is one of the powerful things you can do when you do have that asset. Uh, you know, they have, uh, if you look at all the other companies out there, um, no one has as many assets like this as Amazon. So, so even eBay, when they're doing cross-border trade, they're using, uh, you know, I think someone like a Pitney Bowes or something to kind of do the freight forwarding, um, which is great. And I'm sure that's a very capable thing, but it's not 175 fulfillment centers. It's kind of a reshipping kind of a model versus a get it native and sell the onesie to, uh, Z efficiently. Um, Eric brought on stage, uh, two examples of this. So one was exploding kittens. Uh, if you don't know exploding kittens, it's a fun card game that got uh, backed on Kickstarter. Uh, and, uh, it, it, kittens do not get hurt in this game. It's kind of like Uno, um, except the draw four is an exploding kitten. That's kind of the short version of it. Um, uh, and then, they talked about how Amazon enabled them to essentially go global with, you know, kind of a five person company that was really focused on creating a card game, um, which, which is pretty amazing. Uh, and then they bookended that, uh, which is kind of a very entrepreneurial story with Philips and Philips talked about how they launched a product into India using, uh, the Amazon global selling offering. So, so one thing that's interesting is all the big guys were very much, and by big guys, I mean Google, Facebook, Amazon, uh, eBay, uh, all their talks were really geared towards how do you, you know, they wanted brands to kind of get on their platforms, which is pretty interesting because, you know, three years ago, it was all about sellers and that kind of thing. Now, everyone really is excited about more emerging brands and old school brands and how to get them onto these platforms. So those were my takeaways from that one. Yeah, and uh, one side note on that one, there's a show in Las Vegas earlier in March uh, called Prosper, which is a show really targeted at Amazon sellers, um, and I, I did not attend, but one of the news items out of that was they formally did announce this program in North America, and so they, like, apparently, it's at least formally been announced that anyone can opt in, if you have FBA inventory in the U.S., that they'll now... Um, Fulfill it in Mexico or Canada if you uh, choose. Very cool. Yeah, so it seems like it. Uh, it's a real thing, um, and I, I agree with you. I, I was uh, super interested in that because it just seems uh, way likelier to be successful that this is all one entity versus um, you know the sort of complicated orchestration of multiple partners, like handing off the box between. Um, uh, freight forwarders and custom agents and all those sorts of things. Uh, so then, then yeah, when you, when you do that, you lose things like trackability, you know, little details like that. Exactly. Um, and the way the package arrives at the customer may not uh, be the customer experience you want. Uh, so then the next keynote was, uh, the president of coach who's uh, Joshua Schulman, um, and, uh, uh, very different than the Amazon, uh, presentation. This is a, a brand presentation and, uh, coach, uh, for our listeners is going through a little bit of a change. Uh, you know, the parent company used to be coach and they were a single brand. Um, uh, in the last, I think year or two years, they've acquired a couple companies. So they acquired, a, a luxury shoe manufacturer, Stuart Weissman. And then last year they acquired Kate Spade. And so they've become sort of a house of luxury brands and they've renamed, the parent company, Tapestry. Um, so Joshua is the president of Coach, which is, you know, the biggest of three brands owned by Tapestry. Um, and uh, Joshua talked a little bit about this this big brand evolution that Coach is just kind of completing. Um, they, over uh, a number of years, had really kind of moved from 
luxury to mid-market. So they, they had uh, gotten very promotional. They were selling through a lot of department stores that were very promotional. And a lot of people felt like the equity in the brand had greatly eroded. Um, and so for the last, you know, I guess I would say two years, Coach has been making this overt effort to um, take themselves out of the discount supply chain. Uh, as Joshua says, you know, we are focused on reducing our promotional impressions. Um, and that's uh, a... It's probably a smart thing to do. It, it's both been reflected in coaches' results, which which have been uh, you know uh, much much more favorable this last year. But also, as we've talked a lot about this show, the you know Casey Lowenbaugh would say the retail bifurcation um, that there's a lot of upmarket customers, and you can do real well catering to them. And there's a lot of deep discount customers, and you can do really well catering to them. But where you really don't want to be is the uncomfortable middle in between those two extremes. And that's kind of where Coach had slipped. And so they've kind of done a successful job of moving themselves back up market. Um, so so Joshua was talking a little bit about that. Uh, he he did sort of uh, address department stores, which I found interesting. Um, I'm not I'm not sure they they mentioned it, but Joshua is new to Coach. He he became the, the president of Coach last year, and he was formerly the president of uh, uh, Berdoff Goodman, which is one of the you know the the um, kind of historic uh, famous luxury department stores. So obviously, you know, he has a strong affinity for department stores. Um, and, and he shared his POV that, you know, department stores aren't going away. They're an important part of the ecosystem. Um, and then he kind of talked about the future of the coach brand and, uh, uh, you know, a big part of coach's future, he believes is personalization. So coaches rolled out a lot of uh, capability to customize handbags on an individual basis. So now from their website, you can personalize a lot of your products and there's, and uh, coach owns a bunch of their own stores. They're starting to deploy that personalization capability in the stores as well. So you, you know, instead of, getting the same bag as everyone else, you can get a bag that's completely unique just for you, um, which I do agree, I think, is an important part of uh, uh, the evolution of all these brands. And then uh, his last point uh, in uh, North America, which is Coach's home market, they you know were prominently thought of as a handbag manufacturer. And so they're, they're investing a lot in redefining themselves as a lifestyle brand. And, and that's sort of a jargon for we're, we're going to sell apparel and other items in addition to handbags. And he talked about markets like China where they've been a lifestyle brand from the beginning because they had this much broader assortment when they first went into that market and how differently the Chinese customer thinks about Coach than the, the North American customer. And so that, that was sort of his pitch for the evolution of the brand. Pretty cool. My favorite part of that one was uh, Courtney Reagan. I'm a big CNBC junkie, and uh, she didn't really do it here, but on TV, I've seen her. You, you know, when you, uh, I think what happens is some of these executives meet these reporters and they just kind of assume they're just general business reporters and don't know the industry. Well, Courtney has like an MBA uh, in economics and retail, and she's been at this for, for a long time. And I've seen her just eviscerate executives before. Like I saw her get, uh, she had uh, Lundgren tied up in knots one time. Uh, when he was talking about the Amazon competition. So I was kind of eagerly waiting there for her to catch him in the trap. And, and I think she went pretty easy on him, uh, maybe because the cameras weren't rolling. Uh, I do think, you know, as the commerce guy, a lot of these guys seem like they're in denial about stores. It's like they won't admit that, you know, it's a challenge or something like, like I got a really weird vibe from him that everything's hunky dory, very Pollyanna, you know, stores are great. Brands are great. And, you know, 
uh, I couldn't tell if that was just PR or if he was like really believed it all. So that was kind of, you know, a little concerning. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think there is a theme, uh, you know, all of these guys came on and they're, they're defending their legacy assets, right? So he's talking a lot about how important the store experience is. And in addition to, you know, the wholesale, uh, stores that coach sells through coach owns a bunch of their own stores. So they certainly have a expensive asset there that they want the world to believe is valuable. Um, and I would argue is valuable. Um, and it's going to come into play on some of the other keynotes we're going to talk about later when, you know, when, uh, the CEOs have to spend a lot of their time justifying why their legacy assets are so valuable. Like, you know, it, it, it's fair to question, <laughs> like, you know, if they really were that valuable, they probably wouldn't have to spend a lot of airtime saying they were valuable. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and by the way, uh, I, I randomly, I happen to be sitting for that keynote next to Lauren Thomas, who's the other retail reporter at CNBC. So that was, so we were, we were watching Courtney together. It was kind of fun. So then the next uh, keynote uh, was a, a, a very good get for Shop Talk. Uh, it was uh, Mark Laurie, the, the digital president at Walmart, and uh, Andy Dunn, the, the founder of Bonobos, uh, which is now a, a brand owned by Walmart. Yeah, and this was a last-minute addition, which I thought was interesting. It almost kind of felt like um, you know, maybe they came because they had something to say. So I think we were all eagerly waiting on this one. Yeah, um, and and that that probably is true, and I I would argue that in a way that made it a slightly less interesting keynote than it might have otherwise been for me because uh, uh, as we've covered on this show, um, Walmart had a very visible miss on their their uh, e-commerce growth last quarter, and their their stock took a pretty significant hit as a result of that, um, and so uh, you know that was the the first question uh, to Mark was was to kind of talk about and justify the the you know fact that they had something like 20 or 25 percent growth versus the 40 percent growth uh, that folks were expecting um, and while you know I'm certainly interested in uh, in hearing him talk about that like it it did take up the bulk of of uh, this particular keynote and uh, you know I would have been interested to hear a little bit more about about some other aspects um, but I will say, uh, Mark's answer, which seems like it's now the the corporate line there, is essentially that Walmart planned to have slower growth in Q4 and that it was sort of a retooling quarter for them, you know, after they had had, had several quarters of, of very fast growth. And he, he kind of pointed out that, look, we don't give quarterly guidance. We gave annual guidance and we hit our annual guidance. Um, so we don't understand why everyone was so surprised. And I, like I... You know, I, I think it's fair to say we're all a little cynical of that that story. Yeah, I don't know if it's because of the podcast or uh, whatnot, but uh, I think between the two of us, we probably had forty people come up and offer that they thought that was totally BS. That you know, the the general line was that you know nobody in retail plans for the fourth quarter to be a retooling quarter. Yeah, so I, I think I think the the summary there, like, well, I think fair enough. They they hit their annual guidance, and that's all great. If your plan is to have a soft fourth quarter, it's a bad plan. Yeah. <laughs> um. So other than that, there were some interesting tidbits from that presentation. Uh. Uh, you know, Mark reported that they're up to 75 million SKUs for sale, which is, you know, from a couple of years ago, they, they were in the, you know, couple million SKUs. So that's astronomic growth. I would assume the bulk of that is marketplace. And there's, you know, a slight bit of controversy 
here um, in that there is a former uh, Walmart exec that's actually suing Walmart. And one of his main claims is that Walmart sort of artificially inflates this number by by saying how many SKUs are in the database and not necessarily actively for sale. But but uh, I think I think directionally, uh, Walmart has added an awful lot of SKUs um, and, you know, now is is within an order of magnitude of, of Amazon, which is pretty impressive. Is what I think Amazon's about 400 million SKUs, something in that range. Yeah. Yep. Um, so then uh, he did talk about, you know, something we talk about a lot on the podcast, which is uh, Walmart's grocery, grocery progress. They now have 1,200 stores that do grocery pickup. And so what that means is 1,200 cities where customers can order groceries uh, online and uh, drive by the store and pick it up. And, you know, except for those 1,200 stores, you can't order fresh groceries from Walmart. So... Um, that this is this weird thing that I think the analysts haven't totally picked up on yet. Uh, when you're talking about store sales, you talk a lot about same store sales because you compare apples to apples. When you talk online, you talk, you know, general growth. Um, but now you really have this third category, which is sort of online grocery growth, which is a hybrid. You can only deliver if you have a, a store enabled to do so. Um, so they're at 1200 stores and they, they expect to open another thousand stores this year. Um, you know, in my mind, Nat has been the primary driver of their their huge e-commerce growth. And so I, I think they need to open a thousand or twelve hundred more stores this year to comp well against against last year, or they're gonna they're gonna lap all those those uh grocery stores they opened last year and and that would dramatically slow their comps. Um he also mentioned that they are now in 100 metros with same-day delivery. Uh, this is this blended solution where I think they're using Deliv, they're using Uber, and they're letting their own employees do deliveries. Um, so that that is interesting. We, we, we'll hear about that from Target as well. Uh, and then Andy talked a lot about the digitally native vertical brands, which is a, a term he coined and, and how that fits into the Walmart strategy. Um, I, I think it's Mark Laurie that always uses this metaphor, but but they talk about the the uh, the analogy of Walmart to Netflix, and they say, you know, like, gosh, Netflix is a super successful model. Uh, you can go watch a bunch of uh, other people's movies on Netflix, but increasingly, the big draw to Netflix are these first party uh, content that Netflix created exclusively, like House of Cards or Orange Is the New Black. And so uh, to Andy and Mark, these uh, digitally native vertical brands like Bonobos, ModCloth, um, are uh, the the sort of um, uh, unique videos in the, in the Netflix model. Um, and I, I don't know if they meant to, but they did make an announcement that I had not he- heard before, which is that all of those digitally native brands will eventually find their way onto the Jet sales platform, which many of them are not right now. So that would be ModCloth. Um, for example, would be sold through Jet. Um, and Mark, you know, said the high-level strategy is, look, we're, gonna, we're redefining the Jet brand. We're going to use Jet as the brand to win affluent urban millennials, and you know, which sort of perfectly complements uh, the markets that the Walmart brand is really good at, at uh, winning. Yeah, I, I thought a couple funny things in there. Uh, 
the answer to the question of the bonobos being on jet was, uh, you know, Del Rey, Jason had gone out and searched and he found like just pictures of monkeys instead of he couldn't find bonobos on jet. So was, that was kind of a funny thing that he brought up. Uh, and then I think when they were using that analogy to Netflix, they kind of lost Jason. He was like, so you're going to be a media company? I don't think he understood the the metaphor of unique original content that they were trying to make there. But, um, but it, you know, it certainly is, you know, it, it's definitely, I think it's a very valid strategy. It's kind of like prime exclusives that Amazon is doing. Uh, I think the challenge with Walmart is, you know, they've got like eight things going on that, that are pretty intense in each of their own. Um, and their e-commerce piece is not at a scale that Amazon is. So it's gonna be hard for them to execute well on all eight of those. For sure. Cool. Um, was that anything else to, on yeah, no, the I think, Walmart side? I think that was the main main uh, gist of the Andy and Mark show. Uh, other than were you crushing on Andy the whole time. Uh, Andy Andy had some really cool slippers on that apparently were the slippers he got married in. Yeah, yeah. I took a picture of this. <laughs> I think that was my picture that was circulating. It was funny. <laughs> uh, so uh, then up next was House in the House H O U Z Z. And House is a really cool story. So uh, I actually know one of the founders. His name is Elon, and he was uh, from 2001 to 2010. He ran a bunch of the engineering groups at eBay, uh, and his wife's name is – I'll probably uh, butcher this, but Adi Tatarko. Uh, and they are from Israel, and they moved to Silicon Valley uh, and bought a house probably for a bazillion dollars. Uh, and they were, um, they were working on refurbishing the house. Uh, uh, I think it was about – Eight years ago now, and uh, you know what they found was there was no great e-commerce experience for furnishing your house. So House was born. So they they built House as a way. It's kind of a. It started out as really a, a place where um, kind of think of it as a super vertical Pinterest. So if you did a project where you refurbished your kitchen, for example, uh, and you wanted and a designer wanted to maybe kind of get involved, uh, it was kind of a designer marketplace. So you could get ideas from other people that had done it and then also designers and, and designers liked it because it was a way for them to acquire customers. And that's how they were kind of monetizing it. Then what happened is there were so many do-it-yourselfers that would say, hey, I really like how uh, Jason and his wife did their kitchen. I want to uh, – and I can see this faucet in there that I really like and this countertop, but but I want to know exactly what that is and how to go buy it. So there was this disconnect between the products you would see in these kitchens and other rooms that were being refurbished uh, and the ability to buy them. So they created a product marketplace on there. Uh, and full disclosure, we've been a partner of theirs at Channel Advisor for a very long time. Um, it used to be more of a paid listing kind of a model, and then it moved to a pure marketplace where you can buy them all on house. And they've been a great partner of ours. Uh, so it was cool to hear the story. I've never heard the story from kind of that, that start to where they are now. Uh, and here they are today. They've got 10 million items on the marketplace. They've got over 20,000 sellers uh, and 40 million uh, monthly active users. So, you know, it's pretty, pretty neat that they kind of just really solved the problem and were able to build a couple of different ways of monetizing that on there. Um, he was interviewed by Alfred Lin, who uh, was one of the, I don't know, was he founder status at Zappos? I've always thought of him as a Zappos founder. Uh, um, yeah, that's a good question. He, I, 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 I think he was there at the beginning. I do not know if he's officially a founder or not. Yeah, but he left pretty shortly after the Amazon acquisition and joined Sequoia, which is one of the bluest of blue chips uh, in the Bay Area. So a lot of his questions 
I wasn't sure the retailers were were grokking him because he was talking about monetization strategies and you know he's like going kind of deep into the VC language there. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, uh, and then the last thing I thought was interesting was they they did talk about uh, you know AR. So this is really big right now in the home uh, category where you know you can uh, not you can use augmented reality to look at a room and be at a piece of furniture or a faucet or something like that or maybe even a cabinet, you can kind of get a feel for how that's going to look in your room. So they have a million SKUs that are uh, what I would call AR enabled. Uh, and this was uh, one uh, I want to make sure that we caught that uh, it improves your conversion 11x uh, when, when people are using the AR to look at an item. Uh, you know, so in my calculus, I kind of said, well, the average conversion rate is something like 2 to 3%. So what is that, like 33%? Which I guess makes sense because people – you've got to be pretty far down the funnel if you're going to be like, okay, I'm going to go home. I'm going to fire up this AR thing and I'm going to drop that widget, that piece of furniture, whatever it is, into my room to see if it fits. So so I guess it does kind of jive. It just felt like a really big bump to me. Uh, how yeah. did, did that jive with you? It, it does, and I think largely for the reason you mentioned. Like, I, I, I don't think if you just took any random shopper on that site and forced them to to use an AR experience that they would suddenly convert 11x better. So I don't think the experience. You know, while the experience probably is better, it's not. It, I don't think it. It's this the the magic silver bullet to uh, cause everyone to buy. Um, but I think you have to already have a much higher buying intent to be interested in trying the AR feature. So you, you have to already be more attached to the item and you're investing more time in, in kind of setting it up on your phone and walking to the environment where you want to use it. Um, and so it's, it's, it's one step lower on the funnel. And, and so I, I think it is a great tactic. Um, they, they are also, they are leveraging, a, something we've talked about on the show, Google and, and, uh, Apple have both rolled out AR kits for their operating system that make it way easier to do this kind of stuff well. And so House was sort of a pilot user of those two stacks. Um, but what people hugely underestimate when they implement this feature is you need a source of really good data to have the 3D models of all these items. And so the fact that they have a million items out of their um, their inventory of, uh, you know, that, that they have good 3d models for is, is to me pretty impressive. And that, that now is officially the big barrier for any other retailer that wants to add this feature is, is how do you get the good 3d data? And I, I think in the long run, the brands are all, you know, in the same way that they have to provide a long and a short description to a retailer when they want to sell something, uh, you know, the brands are going to have to start providing, uh, 3d files for, for these things as well. Yeah, I wanted that. That seemed like a very large number to me because, as you and I know, uh, most manufacturers it's a struggle to get a you know a, a human readable short description. You know, so it'll be like wooden chair. Yeah. So 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 I kind of was walking through the logic. I was like, wow, it's a million is like ten percent. That's way higher than I would have guessed. And I was like, it can't be coming from the manufacturers. It just you know it can't. And Generally, then I was thinking, these first generation experiences, it's more the retailer created the data themselves. Yeah. So, so they must be like, 
you know, getting the products in and scan. I know people will shoot videos and product this way. There's these houses that get, you know, quantity one of these things and do that. So then I was thinking maybe they picked, they have the benefit of knowing the top 10% items, get them into a studio and then you can run a scan on them. Um, that was, did you, did you walk through the same process? Yeah. And that, uh, they didn't talk about how they do it. That's, uh, and I would have loved for them to deep dive into that, but that's exactly what I would assume. Um, and it does create this interesting thing. So, uh, and houseware is a particularly weird category because a lot of furniture is uh, – it's not really branded furniture. It's like private label furniture that a bunch of different retailers all sell the same thing and call it something wildly different. Um, so there is some some obfuscation there. But uh, if you think about it, House now has that and owns that 3D data. The manufacturer doesn't. So when um, – uh, Amazon or Crate and Barrel or some other seller wants to sell that same item, you know they uh, they they're going to either have to spend the same money House spent, or the manufacturer is going to have to go spend the money to to uh, 3D scan the file or go back to the designer and get the 3D CAD files from the designer. Um, and so it does it does create this new work stream. This is how a lot of new attributes in e-commerce, this is how they start. The first time someone, a retailer wants to use them, the retailer has to invent them. And once it becomes a best practice, it gets pushed back on the manufacturer and eventually the manufacturer gets good at providing it. I mean, the same is, is true with digital images. Yeah. It also made me wonder, you know, uh, the Wayfair ones talked about a lot. Uh, it made me wonder how many models they have and if they're doing something similar. Yeah. And if you think about it in this category, it's even more ugly. Like a, the hardware to 3D scan these big items is more convoluted than than you know like simple tabletop items, and so much of this stuff is drop shipped. Like if these were shoes that sat in a fulfillment center, you could imagine setting up shop and scanning a bunch of shoes in the fulfillment center. But a lot of these things, you know, might like particularly in the case of Wayfair, they never pass through a Wayfair facility where Wayfair could scan them. Yeah, very interesting. Cool. So after House, we had uh, Google up. Uh, and the Google one was probably, if I was going to pick one that was my highlight, uh, this would have been it. Um, and uh, even then, I think it, kind of what Google announced at the show was largely misunderstood. So I want to spend some time on that because I think it's pretty important. So one of the interesting things that's gone on is the the guy that used to run retail at Google, his name was John Alfernus. Uh, and he was uh, he left to join Pinterest. And he I saw him several times at the show. And he was there with probably like 50 Pinterest people, which I thought was interesting because you don't immediately think shop talk and Pinterest. So I just get this vibe that there's something going on there. Um, and I don't know what it is, but, <laughs> but he's also like his official title there is SVP of ads. Okay. So that makes sense. And commerce at Pinterest. So Pinterest has had what I would call some pretty, you know, meh, e-commerce things. They've got rich pins. They did a little marketplace. They kind of went about it in a weird way uh, that was not very customer friendly. It was easy to implement, but not a great customer experience. So I almost kind of like was wondering, you know, why does Pinterest have so many people here? Why'd they hire Alphanus, you know, an e-commerce guru? What's going on there? I don't have answers, but I just thought it was interesting to see that. Uh, So anyway, uh, Daniel is a great addition to the retail team. So his official title is president of retail and shopping at Google. I talked to a lot of Googlers and they were all really excited because I think they all generally feel, and this is kind of the folks that are in the Google shopping side and they've been working on retail for a long time, 
they feel like retail is really elevating at Google. Um, and the, uh, you know, to a person, they talked about Daniel has been a senior leader at Google for quite a while. Uh, I think his prior title he was, the partnerships uh, was guy, interesting. Yeah, he was like global and strategic partnerships. So, you know, he, he was quite a senior person and he's also well known at Google. You know, a lot of these companies like a Google or an Amazon aren't really known for their ability to partner with other people. Um, whereas, uh, you know, I think he has led the charge in certain categories where partnering is going to be essential for them winning. So, so, uh, I was really eager to hear what he had to talk about. Um, he went through, you know, uh, uh, another thing, whenever Google people uh, get up there, they have to kind of go through the rigmarole of we have seven properties that have over a billion users. We're Google. We're amazing. Here's the big trends we see. Um, the meat and potatoes of his talk to me was the announcement of uh, – and they kind of call it this universal shopping cart, and I'm not a fan of that. Um, but what they've had is they've had these disparate things at Google. So they've had Google Assistant, uh, which we know and love on the show. Uh, they've had uh, Google Express which started out as a kind of a delivery service in a couple of areas. And just think of it as kind of one hour type product. Uh, and then they've had product listing ads. Um, uh, and uh, so, so a, you know, uh, the PLAs are a, uh, uh, a shopping enabled kind of a not enabled, but, uh, you know, an e-commerce ad unit, if you will. So for, for promoting products, so it has a price and that kind of stuff. Um, so they've put them all under this umbrella now. Uh, and they've actually, uh, the, the cool thing for me is essentially they've built a marketplace on the product listing ads and they've taken a couple shots at this and they've, the last time it was called buy on Google and it was just so micro. So it was like five merchants on Android only. And you had to have Google pay and it had to be enabled and it had to have this, that, you know, by the time you slice all that stuff, you're looking at like, you know, 500,000 users, which, which is, you know, it's not nothing, but in the world of Google with all these billion dollar properties, it's like, why are you, why are you going after these, like, you know, this like slice of a slice of a slice of a slice. So, so this feels bolder to me, uh, but un unfortunately they're not doing a great job of describing it. Um, so the way I think about it is, uh, you can now take any skew and have it available in a lot of different flavors. So, so first of all, if it's like what I would call an e-commerce skew, meaning you're going to ship it either from a fulfillment center or a store. So kind of like a two day plus kind of a thing, you can make that viable in a Google search result. Um, if that product is near the user and available for delivery same day, that's another option. So there's kind of like these rings of availability. Um, and then also you can make that SKU available through Google Assistant. So the example they they have used a lot is, uh, as you know, Target has a private label CPG brand called Up and Up. So they show this uh, this detergent that has been enabled um, with this new uh, ad unit that's called a shopping action. So once it's enabled, then uh, there's three use cases. So you can say, uh, "Okay, Google, buy up and up laundry detergent," and it will it will know then um, based on where you are if you can get it uh, kind of same day or in an e-commerce kind of a you know two day type experience. So you, it will ask you, and if it's available in both, it'll ask you which one you want, um, and they'll there may be shopping, shipping fees and stuff there. Um, and then if you're in the Google Express experience, you'll see that product because it is available at a local store. And then if you're in a sponsored um, PLA, you will see it there as well.
So there, um, uh, you know, we uh, at Channel Advisor, we are an early partner on this. And it, I can say they said on stage that uh, Target and Ultra or Ulta are seeing 20 percent lift from that from this unit. And I can say there's there's several other people in there. And, and uh, this is causing really good lift for folks. Um, and this is something I think has been a long time coming. You and I disagree on the mobile gap. Um, and I think um, there's certainly some attribution things in there. But what I think happens is the desktop metaphor doesn't work on mobile. The whole go search for detergent, go into target.com, forget your credentials, get a password reset, log in, put it in your target cart, then order, then enter your credit card. That's such a drag because up further in the stack, the phone already knows who you are and you already have your credit card in the Play Store. So why not just use those credentials? So so this is another attempt, I think, at uh, kind of elevating that transaction higher in the stack. So I'm excited about it. And they went to great pains not to call it a marketplace, but in my mind, it's a marketplace. <laughs> so, so I took this to mean... Google is getting a lot more serious about marketplace and how do they surface this product and make it, you know, and partner with retailers to, to, I think the big win here is going to be closing the mobile gap. And uh, an interesting footnote, one of the things uh, that Alphurnus did is um, he came from the travel group at Google where they did this too. And and this was a little controversial because some people thought they were kind of going around the travel systems and stuff. But you could actually buy a hotel room right on Google Mobile. And, you know, it dramatically increased conversion rates versus kind of like that, again, that desktop metaphor of, okay, Google says there's a hotel over here. Now let me go to that hotel's site and then iterate through, you could actually go buy that room on Google. Um, so, so I think they've seen some really interesting things in travel and they want to bring it here. Uh, and they did a one of it over the last two years that didn't get a lot of success. And then this time it feels like they're taking a much bigger at bat swing. Yeah, for sure. And like, I do think they're taking a bigger swing. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. A huge difference between travel and most of the sort of product commerce, you know, in travel, you're mainly trying to sell a room um, or or a flight, and if you can bundle other travel services into that sale, it's great. But like the overwhelming majority of the time, it's a win to book a room. Uh, a lot of uh, individual items that you sell in e-commerce are only profitable if you get the customer to buy more than one thing. And so, you know, the the level of difficulty for Google is is much higher in the commerce space than the travel space in my mind because um, it can't just be a, a click to buy button in search results because that that frankly is going to drive everyone to single item purchases AOVs will go down and you know the already stressed profitability in the in the whole ecosystem would get even more stressed so it's going to it's going to be interesting to see how all that plays out um two I, I so one funny thing uh the economic model is different uh than most other Google ads units in in you know most cases you're you're paying for that that exposure in the ad world. Um, and you know, Google is charging much more like a marketplace here. You're, you're, you know, paying a take rate on the, on the stuff that Google helps you sell or, you know, in the, the ad business, they call this a rev share model. Um, and when the word got out that they were launching this format, all the traditional SEO guys panicked because they misinterpreted this as, um, Google will now share the profits with you and elevate your listings in organic search. So they, they, um, so there was a, you know, several days of panic on, on Twitter where, where that was sort of going around. I guess one other interesting outcome of this is 
it also creates the scenario where you may not have paid to have a PLA show up, but Google may decide to place your PLA extra times that you didn't pay for and take the rev share from it. And so that that's a an aspect of this program as well, is that Google can can now run Google-funded PLAs. Yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see. And uh, I know we're going to be tight for time, but let's talk about some of the implications in a future show. For sure. Uh, <laughs> so then we had to run from that keynote uh, to another event uh, that that they, uh, is sort of an event within an event. Uh, Jason Delray from Recode, uh, they, they host a, a dinner um, or a, an evening at Shop talk uh that they call code commerce and so you know he he typically gets like uh about three interesting speakers um you know at uh at this sort of show within a show and so uh we we uh, uh hoofed it from the keynote uh to uh, join jason's event and there's some uh, interesting speakers there as well so the the first guys up there um was eric nordstrom who's one of the three uh Nordstrom Brothers running Nordstrom's right now uh, and who does not do a lot of uh, public events. So that that is kind of a cool uh, get. And he was on stage with uh, this gentleman, uh, Don Kingsborough, who's from a company called One Market. And I'll, I'll get into that in just a second. Um, so having Eric there uh, is would be cool under any circumstances, but news had come out that day uh, that the board of directors of Nordstrom had sort of turned down the Nordstrom family's offer to buy uh, the company back and take it private. And so the the you know uh, according to the reports, uh, the deal is dead now. Um, and so, you know, that was obviously a piece of news that Jason went right at Eric about, and which Eric had very little interest in discussing and probably, you know, wasn't at liberty to discuss. So it, it created some sort of uh, humorous for us, awkward for Eric uh, moments at the beginning of that interview. Yeah. Knowing, you know, Delray didn't let up. It kept coming up and he kept pounding on him. It's good. Exactly. Uh, and I, I thought Eric had kind of a funny line. He's like, you know, I'd like to say, I appreciate the question, but I really don't. <laughs> it was <laughs> sort of, sort of humorous. Um, and so he's, so uh, he was on stage with this guy, uh, Don Kingsborough, and Don is uh, the CEO of a company called One Market, and they're a, they're a spinoff out of an incubation lab that's owned by Westfield Malls. Um, and so I don't think – I think uh, Westfield may still hold an interest in One Market, but they're a separate entity now. I think they probably figured out uh, that nobody would want to uh, participate with One Market if they were exclusively owned by this one mall. Um, and one market is kind of an interesting venture. Uh, you know, personally, I'm a little skeptical on it, but the, the gist of it is, uh, that, Hey, um, Amazon has locked up a big chunk of the market and they have this huge unfair advantage. Amazon has all this data about the consumer. Uh, they see way more of the consumer's purchase behavior and more of their browsing behavior than anyone else. And they're really putting all the traditional retailers at a disadvantage because no one retailer with the, you know, possible exception of, of Walmart really has the, the, data visibility to know the customer as well as Amazon does. And so one market is an effort to say, let's create a data co-op where all the retailers share everything they know about a consumer. Um, and then we'll make, uh, 
that data available to any of the retailers uh, in the co-op to improve their experience. And they have to make that data available in a, a very limited way. Like they, they, they can't share um, personally identifiable information from one retailer to another. And they, they can't, you know, give one retailer another retailer's customers. But essentially if, um, if you're a customer and you've done a bunch of shopping at coach and so coach knows you really well, and then you walk into Michael Kors and, you know, Michael Kors says, Hey, I just met this guy, Scott Wingo, and he's in the co-op database. Um, the, the, uh, one market would be able to share some of the, the, uh, enhanced data they know about Scott Wingo that they learned from Scott's shopping with coach. And so, so at, at the, I don't know if I explained that very well, but at the highest level, this is sort of a, a customer data co-op to compete with Amazon. Yeah, I have to say, um, I've never met non Don before, but he seemed like a really storied guy. He did like you know some really great stints at like PayPal and places. So, so I have no doubt he can build what it, he says he's going to build. But I honestly didn't understand a bit about it. Like I, you know. I, I guess I didn't get the use case. It's like, I don't really care if I go to South Point Mall and then I go to Crabtree Mall and they know about me. Like, yep. I just don't understand. Like, I couldn't really get my head around a use case. Sure. And maybe that's because I'm a very transactional mall person. I'm like going to the Apple store to get my Air, AirPods and that's it. I'm not I'm not like a browser maybe, but I don't know. I, I kind of missed the use case. Yeah. So you, you are hitting, So you are hitting on one of the potential liabilities of this model is none of these retailers are particularly good at using the data they do already have about all of us when we shop. And so it's it's hard to say that their biggest problem is they don't know enough about us. Um but it is fair to say, you know, that they they are worried that they know less about us than Amazon does. So I, you know, I get that. A big problem with this model is is anytime you explain anything like this model to a consumer, they're going to immediately panic and get creeped out, and it it just sounds like Big Brother. Um, and so it's, uh, you know, uh, we'll have to see. It's it's focused on the legacy mall guys and you know retailers, and of course they they have a bunch of other headwinds that are unrelated to any of this. So. I don't know. I'll, I'll be honest, though. I did get the impression um, that Don has a personal relationship with Eric and that the deal struck. Uh, and by the way, Nordstrom is one of the retailers participating in one market. Um, so I suspect the deal struck was Eric will come on to Code Commerce and talk with Jason Del Rey if uh, he gets to bring Don with him and Don gets to make a pitch for one market. Yeah, and they didn't talk about it, but I kind of get the vibe Nordstrom may have invested in that that entity. Um, yeah. They, well, I don't so know it's, why. A, it's a co-op. I think all the retailers that participate are basically investors. Like you, okay. you own a piece of it. So, so absolutely. Um, yeah. and so Eric had a vested interest in Don doing well. And, you know, uh, I, let me just say, like, I don't think Jason had a lot of super interesting questions for Don. I think he was a lot more focused on, on what he could get out of Eric. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I, I'm not sure there was a lot of uh, interesting Nordstrom revelations in, in this interview other than, uh, you know, uh, the plan at Nordstrom is to do what they've always been doing. You know, it's the fact that we didn't buy the company back doesn't change anything was kind of Eric's message. Uh, there, I thought there was kind of a uh, just a funny random story. Eric's telling the story about his dad, Bruce Nordstrom, that was, you know, former president of Nordstrom's and how uh, whenever someone would call Nordstrom a department store, how Bruce would be really upset and say, we're not a department store, we're a specialty store. And, you know, uh, for the for, you know, folks listening, Nordstrom started out as a shoe retailer and they they still like have a lot of that DNA. Um, and 
uh, Eric said, and I, you know, I would be like, whatever, Dad. We're we're a big store with a a, a escalator, so call it what you want. And it it just was a funny moment for me thinking of this like storied retail family like having these arguments around the Thanksgiving table about whether they're a department store or not. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I had never met Ed Nordstrom, so that was kind of cool. Nice. Uh, and then the the other thing that came up a little bit, which is interesting, I don't think Eric shared any new information, but Nordstrom has this store in uh, Los Angeles called Nordstrom Local, and uh, this is small a small store by Nordstrom standards. I think it's still pretty big. I think it's like a 20,000-square-foot store, which a, a full Nordstrom might be like uh, 50,000 square feet. Um and there is no inventory for sale in this store. So it's kind of like a Bonobos guide shop. Like it's there, you know, there's personalized customer experiences and shopping concierges and lots of product on mannequins that you can look at. But then you, you order uh, the product and Nordstrom ships it to your house. And uh, the talking point that Jason was focused on was uh, I've heard a lot uh, about this store and the fact that it's, it's not profitable and isn't likely to be profitable in the in the near future. Um, and so this feels like a kind of a lab project or an investment for Nordstrom. And, you know, aren't you worried about not being able to make those kind of investments going forward uh, since you, you know, you you were unsuccessful in, in going private? Um, and I, I think Eric's point was, no, we we paid for this w- uh, without going private. And we, we do lots of things like this all the time. So this is sort of business as usual for us is, you know, we do some things we expect to be profitable right away, and we do some things that we expect to learn from and hope to make a profit in the longer horizon. Yeah. Cool. Um, I'll cover this next one really quick. So uh, I was excited at Shop Talk generally, but also at Code Commerce. There was a little bit more kind of of the different models out there. And this one I would put kind of squarely in the on demand economy bucket, uh, which is, I'm obviously pretty uh, fascinated with with my new company. Uh, and this is in the food delivery category where there is a battle royale going on. So they had the CEO of DoorDash and his name is Tony Shu. Uh, that's spelled XU. Uh, and then he was on stage with uh, one of the leaders at the Cheesecake Factory, which is a, a very popular restaurant. Um, and they had just announced that they were doing uh, delivery, food delivery for cheesecake through DoorDash. Um, and I didn't realize it until I saw him on stage, but I've actually met Tony several times. He was in the eBay partnership group from 2009 to 2011. So that was cool to see someone from the world of e-commerce kind of spreading his wings and becoming an entrepreneur. Uh, the uh, One of the big news items, uh, and Kara Swisher did the interview here, and she couldn't seem to get her head around the fact they just raised over $500 million. So they're, they're well beyond the unicorn status, which is so uh, sought after in the Bay Area, which means you have a valuation over a billion. I would hazard to guess they're probably a deca corn, which is a $10 billion valuation. Um, so there's uh, so there's DoorDash, there's Grubhub, which is actually public. Uh, there's uh, the big one that's really gaining popularity is Uber Eats. Uh, and then there's many, many more of these. There's, there's probably 10 food. And this is like prepared food delivery companies. And if you widen the radius a little bit to include uh, ingredient, make it yourself kinds of things, then the category, it's even 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 kind of more crowded um and so she was kind of hammering on like you know why would you raise so much money and that kind of thing and i thought he had a great answer he's like you know we looked at the size of opportunity and this is the this is you know this is like commiserate with the size of opportunity and and he's right you know this is a multi-billion dollar opportunity if they can get five percent of all restaurants business to be through you know just in the industry and they capture 30 percent of that that ends up being a you know a really really big number so um and he 
talked about, uh, I think he said they're in 30 markets and they're going to get into 80. So there, there's a geographic component of this. Um, uh, you know, one funny question was she asked him, what are you scared most of? And he said the telephone and she was like, you know, what do you mean? And, uh, you know, it's just like, that's the customer experience they're up against is they kind of have to be better than just calling a restaurant on the phone to do takeout with, which, uh, and, and then you know, obviously you have to go get it. But, uh, I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, uh, and then you and I, it was kind of funny. You and I had kind of had this discussion around, you know, with these, with this business, is it good for the restaurants and bad? And there's an argument that this actually hurts margin, right? Because you're already paying for that kitchen staff and everything. And then if they're making meals for this pickup, uh, you don't get a lot of that upsell that you get in the restaurant. It's your same argument uh, that you made with the Google Marketplace, right? When you when two people go to a restaurant and have a meal, there's alcohol involved. There's maybe a dessert that you didn't plan to have uh, and some appetizers and that kind of thing. Whereas I think uh, I would guess the ticket when you're doing takeout or delivery is much less. And you obviously don't get the alcohol sales, which is where there's a lot of margin. Um, but they, uh, they got asked a question about that. And the cheesecake guy uh, explained that, you know, no, it's really incremental business. So they already have the fixed cost of the kitchen and they viewed it as incremental. Um, and they therefore, you know, yes, the margin is lower than an in in a dine in guest, but it's incremental margin. So, you know, it helps the profitability of the restaurant. So I thought that was an interesting argument. Um, you know, a lot of people you and I talked to after were kind of skeptical about that. So um, uh, and then he did talk about at the Cheesecake Factory, you know, like two years ago, they had 8% takeout and now it's kind of risen to 12%. Um, they didn't ever say if this was exclusive because what a lot of these guys do is they will actually kind of order as if they're a customer and then send their drivers so they don't have to have a, you know, a relationship with the restaurant. So I know Grubhub does that, for example. So part of that 12% is not only DoorDash, but probably all the other delivery guys too. Uh, and then uh, last little tidbit, they said that 25% um, of DoorDash volume is from chains. And then I thought they said the rest was from independence, but I think you took a note and tweeted 5%. So no, no, no. That's a typo in our notes. You are exactly okay. right. 75%. Okay. 75%. Okay. Yep. So that was interesting. And then uh, I also found it interesting, you know, uh, I'm a fan of entrepreneurs. Uh, Tony has a deep restaurant background. I think, I think he said his parents had a restaurant I for sure. I think his mom still runs a restaurant. Yeah. But then somewhere in there, someone said, I think he said his grandparents also had a restaurant. I, I couldn't tell if maybe his mom had taken over the family restaurant, but that was, you know, it's kind of neat that he was kind of came back to his roots and um, really understood the restaurant business deeply. And then uh, final comment, uh, when asked, you know, there's all these competitors out there when asked how they're going to win. Uh, I thought his answer was pretty clever. He said, you know, we are really just focused on this. We're not doing self-driving cars. We're not doing, you know, uh, building a whole delivery network that's separate. We're really focused on how do we deliver an amazing dining experience. Uh, and, you know, how do we, and then he said, it was a very Amazon way of thinking, you know, we measure every second between when the order comes in and it gets delivered and how do we get the food there hot, fresh. So I, I left that, you know, thinking, all right, here's a guy that's really kind of gets it. He understands the customer and he's got a war chest of 500 million. So, so I felt like he had a pretty good shot at winning and I was, I was excited to see where they take it. Yeah, I would also argue that he already has uh, a considerably better customer experience than a lot of his competitors. So, it, like some of that that focus and care, like, is already very evident in in uh, their customer experience. Um, 
Yeah, one one example of that was even worrying about, you know, when they deliver the cheesecake from the Cheesecake Factory, making sure the slice looks perfect and it hasn't like flipped on its side or gotten all stuck around in the container. Um, that's those kind of details uh, that I spend a lot of my day on. <laughs> so I, I really appreciated um, that level of detail that they think about. Yeah, for sure. And I think that I would just, you know, mention to the listeners, this is an area to pay attention to the whole um, – food consumption industry is going through major disruption right now. And it's really unclear what the future looks like. But, you know, when the friction to get food, restaurant food delivered home is way lower, um, suddenly those restaurants are competing with uh, what used to be grocery trips when you'd buy ingredients and make your own dinner. And they're competing with the ready-to-eat food that the grocery store sells. Um, And, you know, the digital enablement of all this thing also makes – a bunch of the restaurants compete that didn't used to compete. So maybe you, you would have gone to a fast food restaurant in the past because you only had a limited amount of time. But now if you can uh, place your order for Cheesecake Factory before you get to the, the store and know that when you arrive, there's a table wet, ready for you and your food's going to be there in two minutes and that when you're done, you can walk out and uh, not have to pay because you'll get automatically charged. Suddenly you can eat at Cheesecake Factory you know, in about the same amount of time that you used to eat at a fast food restaurant. So all of these digital is enabling all of these former, you know, different channels to suddenly compete with each other. And it's, it's, it's super interesting. Um, I, one note on the cheesecake guy, he kind of poo pooed some of those experiences and he's like, yeah, we're never going to have tablets on our, our, uh, tables, which is sort of taking a shot at like Applebee's and, and, uh, Chili's and some other chains that are experimenting with that because we just think the customer wants a, a personal experience and an interaction with a server. And that that could be true and he could be right. Uh, that's also a justification that you always hear from the slow mover when when his competitors are are adopting stuff that he hasn't been able to adopt. So so we'll, uh, interesting space to watch. Um, so then the last uh, presenter at Code Commerce uh, was Jennifer Heyman from uh, Rent the Runway. So she's another uh, entrepreneur that has really killed it. She invented this clever model of renting apparel versus buying it. Um, and they, they, you know, by all accounts have, have gr- uh, grown rapidly. Like I don't think they've, they've talked about their exit yet. Um, but that uh, – you know, could could be in the horizon. Uh, the thing that she shared that was news to me and pretty interesting, the original Rent the Runway model, you know, they really focused on uh, women that needed something to wear for a special occasion. So it's your spring formal, it's, it's your company party, and you might rent a designer dress um, that you would, you would never, you know, want to own and wear it one time to that event. And that's really, you know, the first market that Rent the Runway went after. But for a long time, they've really been focused on this subscription model where they essentially get their shopper, their customer to pay a fixed amount of money every month and get uh, rental apparel to wear every month. And depending on how many, how much you pay, you get a different level of, of uh, frequency of new outfits. And so the unlimited all-you-can-drink model is uh, about 160 bucks a month. Um, and, she, and she alleged that they were having a lot of success with this $160 a month subscription service and that the average subscriber that opted into that program is wearing Rent the Runway apparel 150 days a year. Um, 
And so she did not tell us exactly what her penetration was with that model, and that would have been really interesting to know. But if there's a cohort of women that are 150 days a year wearing stuff uh, that they rented instead of own, um, that that really foretells a, a a paradigm shift in the apparel business. I mean, that's that's a lot like you know half of all car owners leasing their car instead of buying it, and so. Um, uh, I, I, that was uh, surprising to me that she got that level of adoption, and that that I think that's pretty interesting and well worth watching. Very cool. Then after that, we uh, went to the Google party, which was amazing. And you and I, uh, we, uh, our security folks were kind enough to let Wycliffe Jean in, and we did a selfie with him. So if you're a, a Wycliffe fan like we are, you can check that out on Twitter. Yeah, he seemed really thrilled to get the picture. He's I noticed he's spread it all over his social media. It might even be his profile pic now. I'm sure it is. Yeah. Uh, uh, the other thing I learned is we need like a uh, we need a posse. We need uh, someone constantly Facebook living us, and we need a social media manager, and we need big burly security guards. So yeah, uh, we'll put that on our wish list. The other two things we need is a stylist and talent. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get the posse first, then we'll work on those. Yeah, I agree with you. Seems easy. I think, I think the, the first thing seemed way easier to get. Okay. Uh, and so then you abandoned me. Yeah, I had the call of the East Coast was uh, the siren song. So I had to head back uh, to continue working on my day job. But fortunately, I have a podcast partner and I didn't have to go to the Wednesday content, but you did. So tell us uh, some of the highlights from that. Yeah. So it, the Wednesday is sort of a half day and you can imagine a lot of people went home. I think they probably had better attendance than than they otherwise would have because a lot of the East Coasters got stuck here as a result of a snowstorm on the East Coast. Um, so there were there were three final keynotes, and I think they were good keynotes that were uh, you know interesting to to catch. The first one was an eBay keynote, and they had uh, two execs from eBay. They had uh, Jan Peterson, who's the chief uh, AI scientist at eBay, and this presentation was mostly about AI. And then they had uh, Scott Cutler, who I'm, I'm uh, guessing you know, who's the SVP of uh, Americas for eBay. I have not met Scott, oh, uh, but a bunch of people have. The um, he's out of StubHub, which is cool because um, you know the StubHub has proven that vertical experiences on eBay are a good thing, and I've I've been a big fan of vertical experiences, and so I'm optimistic maybe he'll bring that into the eBay world uh, in a deeper way. So, in in fairness, he it seemed like he kind of queued it up. He gave the the kind of high-level presentation on eBay and then handed it over to Jan to talk about uh, some of the AI things. Um, and Jan may have been a little um, technical for some of the audience, um, but they they did get to some of the AI use cases that, that eBay is using, um, and uh, that was pretty interesting. And the, 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 the most interesting one to me... Um, so a, a eBay has some of the, the augmented reality stuff that we were talking about with House. Uh, they're, they're using um, uh, image recognition to categorize a lot of pictures and add attributes to product listings and things like that. But the most interesting one is this uh, feature where a eBay seller can decide what box to ship their item in. Um, by using augmented reality to visualize their product in the various uh, eBay box sizes. 
Um, so this is in, you could almost think of this as a seller facing feature instead of a customer facing feature. Um, and they, they kind of demoed, uh, you know, how the, the seller could use this tool to, to visualize the box and pick the, pick the best box and ship West air. Um, and, uh, spoiler alert, uh, we, we also recorded an, uh, a uh, podcast with Bob Cubbins um, from eBay, and and uh, he'll be talking a lot more about that feature on that podcast when we get it published. Yeah, I'm excited to hear that one. Yeah. Uh, so then the the next keynote was David Jaffe, who's the CEO of Asina Group. Uh, for those that aren't familiar with that name, they're another house of brands in the apparel space. David got up and gave a very traditional retailer presentation talking about how the customers changed and we all have to, you know, be more personalized and we all have to embrace omni-channel and stores are super important, but, you know, we have to use them in these new ways. So the last keynote is this super cool company. Um, this is, uh, uh, and I think I'm going to pr- mispronounce his name unless you, uh, you save me, Scott, but is it, I think is Shay Hung. Um, so he's the, Wong. uh, Wong, I'm sorry. Um, so he's the CEO of boxed, um, the, we've had boxed on the show, right? We have. Yes. Uh, not Shay, but no. one of, uh, one of the folks there. No. Yeah. And, the the keynote, uh, for boxed was, uh, he, he started out by saying, hey, I came with this whole, you know, corporate presentation all about us. And I kind of decided that if I were in the audience, I would find that super boring. So I threw it away and I just want to, you know, tell you some stories about how we got started. And so I think he won the audience over right away with with that. And he he, you know, showed these, these pictures of uh, him and his Dell computer and, you know, a pallet of cardboard boxes in uh, what looked like his bedroom. And he talked about, you know, this is the beginning of boxed or as my mother-in-law called it unemployment. Um, and he, <laughs> he sort of shared all these, these stories about how, how his mother-in-law was horrified and, you know, didn't, didn't think he was good enough for, for, <laughs> for her daughter uh, and how this business was not instilling confidence. And then later as they got traction and they moved to the garage and set up racks in the garage. And eventually they have all these like storage pods out outside uh, his house. And this is like a house in a typical suburb in New Jersey and how all his neighbors had assumed that, that uh, he was starting a drug dealing business Um and uh, it, it was just kind of a fun sto- origin story about Boxed. Um, it, you know, I'm not sure there was like a huge takeaway about their strategy. He did like briefly touch on, on you know, their core value proposition, which is, you know, e-commerce is tough to be profitable. And when you ship, you know, a few things in a, in a box, it's, it's definitely not profitable. And so their whole model is based on, you know, getting customers to buy more and, and uh, shipping in bulk. Uh, he did not touch on these at all, but there are all these other amazing stories about other aspects of Boxed. Um, I think Shay uh, personally pays for all of his employees' weddings. So if you work there and you get married, uh, you know he gives you like a ten thousand dollar budget to cover your wedding. And I think he's now paying for college tuition uh, for the children of any of the employees. And so he, you know, he he's an interesting guy that obviously cares a lot about his employees. He mainly promotes from within. So you know, most of the management team are guys that started out in the uh, the warehouse and. Uh, uh, you know, and he says in many cases, 
uh, you know, people that are doing a great job often, you know, that may not have even completed their high school de- uh, degree uh, diploma. So, um, interesting story, uh, fun to listen to. Uh, I'm not sure there was like a ton of takeaways that you would go home and apply directly to your, to your giant e-commerce business. Um, but he definitely is taking a, a slightly different path and I, I, I'm sure he's engendered a lot more customer loyalty or, uh, uh employee loyalty than the average e-commerce company. Yeah. One, one tweet I saw and I wanted to verify with you is he somewhere in there, he said that, uh, one of their top customers is Amazon doing test orders from them. So they, he showed like some screenshot where, you know, it was test order one at amazon.com test order two, test order three. Yeah. So it seems like they are, they're kind of secret shopping him a lot over there. It, yeah. So, so I'm not sure. I don't think he said it was one of their top customers, but he did make a joke about one of his early customers that he really appreciated whose first name was test last name or Order who lived in uh, uh, Seattle uh, by the name of Amazon. Um, yeah, and so I thought that this was is a good funny. time to. So, so Amazon has just kind of changed the price model for their com- com- competing, you know, for the pantry thing too. So, I wonder, I wonder if that was their reaction to box. Uh, yeah, I, it, it easily could have been. And just just to recap for listeners that don't know, like you know, Prime used to be uh, there was a minimum. Uh, I'm sorry, Prime Pantry. Um, was essentially you you pay a fee for a box and then you get to put as many pantry items in the, in that box as as you like um, for a fixed fee and so it was sort of a, a a model similar to box to get you to buy a big box of stuff but the problem with the prime pantry model was um, that you had to pay this this six dollar fee up front to start the box and so you know there was you would only do it if you knew you were buying a lot of stuff and there was kind of this high threshold to start the box. Um, and so now uh, the pivot in the economic model is you no longer pay for each box and instead you pay a subscription. And uh, I don't remember exactly what the subscription is. I want to say it's like 10 bucks a month, but I might be wrong on that. Yep, I think it's like nine ninety nine. Yeah, and, and so in the one, on one hand – it's uh it's a higher bar to get someone to do a monthly subscription than it is to do like an on-demand thing but once you do that subscription there's now very little um sort of friction to leveraging it and i think what amazon found was that the the six dollar per box was was you know a lot of friction for anyone to use the box so they weren't getting as much adoption and that you know now they can sell this this subscription service and start getting more you know maybe a smaller um group of users but uh much more frequent use of of the program and so that and that does feel like a reaction to boxed very cool and I'd say it's happened again. We've used all our allotted time, but we've actually used way more than our allotted time. Um, so as you, as you can tell from listening to yesterday's show and today's show, uh, there was a lot going on at Shop Talk. So that's, you know, I, I feel like we did a fast recap and it was two and a half hours. Um, if people do have any questions or you feel like we missed something or you want to continue the conversation, we'd love to hear from you on Facebook. Uh Scott and I spent a, a lot of time on this, so we sure would appreciate that five-star review on uh, iTunes. Um, but thank you very much for you know the two or three listeners that stuck it out for all two and a half hours. Oh, I think there'll be more. This is riveting. 
So, so uh, last comment. Uh, while we're at Shop Talk, we got some really great guests on the show. And over the next five weeks, we're going to be releasing some amazing conversations with se- senior leaders from Johnson & Johnson, 1010 Data, eBay, Walgreens, American Eagle, Saban, Top Hatter, and Comcast Ventures. So make sure you hit that subscribe button because we are going to have a lot of content coming out over the following weeks. Publishing Storm. And until next time, happy commerce. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.